Psalm 18, we'll start reading with verse 1. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord, to my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked, the foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made dark darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of your breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With the mercy you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. tortuous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God, the God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless? He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand supported me, and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them, and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, and those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them, as, I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. 
the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who delivered me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You rescued me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we are reminded of your provision for your people, for the fortress, for the security and the safety that you uh, give to your people when we run to you. And um, as we sit under your word this morning, will you please remind us of who you are, who we are, and of our need for you. And may you be glorified as Pastor Brian uh, brings this word to us. May he uh, speak through the power of the Holy Spirit, and may uh, that Spirit work in our hearts and change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you, Greg, for reading that passage for us. Chose it specifically for you. You're a great reader. So, 50 verses. Good job. Thank you. All right. So, today we are continuing our study in the Psalms. So, it'll be this week, and then next week will be our final one. And the series is titled God's Playlist, and we do it every year. We work through the Psalms. They're songs, poetry collected by God's people, Israel. Um, Various different Psalms with various different purposes and meanings, all intended to call God's people to praise and worship of God, trust in God in various circumstances. It's to bring our hearts to worship, and one of our values is worship here at Gospel Life Church, and we describe ourselves as worshipers, and what we mean by that is every aspect of our life is meant to worship God. And the Psalms were one of these collection of writings that were put together, various authors, some of David, some of Solomon, some of Asaph, some of other men, collected to help instruct God's people on how to worship God. And that's why you have the Psalms as a place that many people run to when they're in difficulty because they're trying to figure out how to live a life of worship in light of all the trouble and trials and struggles that are going on in their life. And guess what? The Psalms instruct us in that. The Psalms are often laments, and we actually looked at a, a prayerful lament of David last Sunday in Psalm 17, and is crying out to God for deliverance and help, and, as a, and it was given to God's people to, to help teach us how to pray, and we looked at that last week. Today, we're coming to Psalm 18, and this is not a lament. This is a rejoicing. This is a praise, and, and really what we see here is is the desire of the, those who have collected the psalms and placed them here to help teach us how to praise. This is a, a psalm that is connected to 2 Samuel chapter 22. And you'll actually, if you turn there, you would find this very psalm with just some slight differences recorded there. And it's at the end of David's life. And we're not sure whether the, the psalm we have in 18 or the one we have in 2 Samuel 22, which one were writ, was written first, But it really makes sense to understand the connection between this psalm and as David is ending his life and gives praise to God for all that he has brought him through. Not a perfect man by any means, and yet, even to the end of his life, he is described as a man after God's own heart. And so what a a great opportunity for us to come to this psalm to see 
uh, David's ability to praise God at the end of, the li- of his life, and it calls us to live lives that enable us to praise God correctly, properly, rightly as well. See the title of the psalm here, To the Choir Master, the Psalm of David, the Servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hands of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And so today we're going to be looking at Psalm 18, and our hope is that it will be a challenge to us, um, that just like Psalm 17 helps us learn how to pray, so Psalm 18 will help us learn how to praise. Would you go to Lord in prayer with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, may we be able to say with the psalmist, I love you, O Lord, my strength. Lord, as we work through this, Lord, may we, may we see the ways in which we might bring praise to you, not just with our lips, though, though we need those, but with our hearts or with our hands with all of us. May we today, as we affirm these truths and psalms, declare our love for you. Or may we leave today with purpose to declare our love to you. Lord, we ask that you would bless your word in the midst of your people. Lord, may it be a a tasty um, meal for us today to, uh, to give strength to our hungry souls, Lord, to our spiritual lives that ultimately comes out in our physical lives and actions. Lord, may, may we be fed today, and in, and in our feeding, may we then go out and, and live life energized by the words that you have given to us today. Lord, we do not pray that only for ourselves, Lord, but we also Lift up others who are meeting today. Lord, and I just want to lift up Iglesia Camino al Cielo and Manuel Sanchez as their church meets today here in Joliet. Lord, that you would bless them with your word. Lord, and as you feed us, you would also feed them. Lord, may they gain strength from it and may they serve you with their lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, my main point is this, that Christians praise God when His stability, deliverance, commands, and judgments are the source of their lives. Christians praise God when His stability, deliverance, commands, and judgment are the source of their lives. Now, when we come to a word like praise, it would be good for us to define it. fairly simple explanation of praise is this, that praise is the expression of respect and gratitude given to a deity as an act of, of worship. Praise is an expression of respect or gratitude that's given to a deity as an act of worship. And I think David understands this idea that he is God coming before the God whom he serves. The God who he just proclaimed in chapter 17 is the one who has given his hesed love, his covenantal loyal love to his people, to David. This God who he's coming to is the God who is worthy of his expressions of respect and gratitude. But what we see in this psalm is that David doesn't just expect words to be enough. He believes that 
praise that is true and respectful and gracious to this God means that his life must also reflect what he is saying. How great is it for you to have someone come to you and just declare how wonderful you are? How, wow, you're just a great person. I love being with you. And they're like, just, I'm amazed by you. And then you say, well, oh, I feel good. And then they never want to be around you. They say that to your face. Then they never want to be with you. Maybe even worse, they tell other people something different. They show something different. You know, maybe they don't even say anything, but someone else is like, oh, yeah, that Brian guy? And they're like, oh, Brian guy. Well, obviously, they have a problem with it. But yet, to my face, they say, you're great. What's, that's a problem, right? We understand that to be a problem. The th- same thing's true of our praise. Sure, all of us can stand here this morning and sing about how great God is. But David understands that praise shouldn't just be about what we sing. We sing it because we believe it, and because we believe it, we live it. We trust in Him for our stability. We trust in Him for our deliverance. We hear His commands and obey them, and we rely on His judgment. And so this morning, I hope to call us to that, to to true true praise, to true expressions of respect and gratitude. We should should be declaring things about our God. We should be singing about Him. Let's make sure that what we sing and what we say are reflected in who we are. So the first point I had this morning is this. We praise God when we have made Him the source of our stability in our everyday lives. We praise God when we have made Him the source of our stability in our everyday lives. And I think we see this in how David here starts the psalm and how David here ends the psalm. He starts the psalm with proclaiming the greatness of God and he ends the psalm with proclaiming the greatness of God. And specifically, he chooses to use metaphors that describe the stability that he finds in his God. Notice the metaphors that he uses. The Lord is my strength. The Lord is my rock. The Lord is my fortress and my deliverer. He's the refuge, the one in whom I hide. He's my shield, the one who stands before me and protects me. He is the horn of salvation. That as it, it's, it's the celebration of a victory won. Or it reminds me of Lord of the Rings. Sorry, I gotta go there. And they're in Helm's Deep and surrounded by all these orcs and monsters and everything. And they're they're waiting the third day when Gandalf says he's okay, I'm a nerd. Uh, Gandalf's at least I didn't say Dumbledore was gonna come. Uh, when Gandalf's gonna come. And he promised, I'll be there on the third day. He's gathering this army and they're just they just gotta hold out. And it seems like they're gonna be defeated, they're gonna be overrun. And they say, let's, it's the third day, so let's ride out and hope. And as they ride out, they hear this horn that, that, that announces the entrance of Gandalf and the rest of the army, and they come in and just annihilate them. It's a great scene. That's right. It is, sorry, if you haven't read it. I didn't say if you hadn't seen it. I said if you hadn't read it, you need to read it. 
All right, then you can see it. Um, the horn of salvation. The victory is assured when you hear the sound. My stronghold, he describes here, where I'm found safe. These metaphors of stability, where, we, where David stands firm, is before God. But there's one in particular that he repeats throughout the psalm. He says it twice here in uh, verse 2, this idea of him being the rock. Notice, the Lord is my rock, and then the very next phrase, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. He repeats it again in verse 31, for who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? Or when we get to the end, as he starts his declaration of praise at the conclusion, notice what he starts with, verse 46, the Lord lives, blessed be my rock. Rock here is, is not just one of the metaphors, but is the, seems, to, seems to be the most significant metaphor to David in this passage. David looks to God to find a sure foundation to his life. What is he going to stand on? He is going to stand on the rock. Where is he going to hide? He is going to hide behind the rock. Where is he going to find satisfaction in life? Like in the desert. There is a short season in the desert where the rains come, and at the edge of the desert, the, the grass and moss kind of grows, and it's green, but the sun comes out and scorches it. Yet, if there is a rock underneath that rock, there is still life, and it continues to exist. This, the shade of the rock allows it to grow, and the sun does not scorch it. David finds his hope, his satisfaction, his foundation on the rock. And what's interesting about this idea of the rock is that we go to the New Testament, and Paul instructs us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 about the rock that followed followed the Israelites through the wilderness. And he said, that rock is Jesus Christ. The rock that was the foundation and the supplying of water and life to the people of Israel was Jesus Christ. And in turn, I don't think it's difficult for us to look at David and the sustaining power of this rock of David and not see that this also is Jesus Christ who in Colossians, Paul says, sustains all things. And he was the sustainer for David himself. As he concludes this section here in, in, in his introduction here, he says, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. As he, if we have a summary of all these attributes of God that he lists so far, the stability, what does it declare to us? That God is worthy to be praised. God is always a sure foundation to anyone who would build his life on him. So anyone who builds on him will be able to praise him. There is no one who has built their life on the rock of Jesus Christ that cannot praise Him for His sure foundation, His provision. So we can say what you build your life on matters. Too many Christians sing praises to God while rejecting building their lives on Him. And in fact, Jesus says this in Luke chapter 6. 
He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And this is what David is declaring at the end of his life. The reason why he's a man after God's own heart is because he has built his foundation on the rock. And his foundation is sure that as he comes to the end, he can praise God because of the way he has built his life. And when the floods arose, Jesus says, and the streams broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been built well. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the streams broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Some Christians build their lives on something other than God and then wonder where God's stability is. They ask God where He is in their problems and why isn't He strengthening them and upholding them? Why isn't He their rock? And it's because they are not on the rock. The stability that God promises is the stability found in building our lives on Him. And David himself understands that. Because he is the rock, verse, 20, verse 46, blessed be my rock and exaltation be to God, the God of my salvation. The rock is where you find salvation, is where you find hope. His deliverance from his enemies, his rescue from the man of violence, is because he has found a sure foundation upon which to build. As he ends, great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love, hesed love to his anointed, to David and to his offspring forever because he is built upon the rock. The floods and the streams will come against every person in this room. Every house will face it. Building on anything other than God will bring great sorrow, will bring great regret, but only building on the rock will lead to a life of praise for God's stability. We want to praise our God because we find Him to be who He promises to be. But we have to start by recognizing He is the foundation. He is the source of our stability. We can't just say, well, God, where were you when we built on something else? when we found our source in something else. No, God will show Himself to be our stability as we build upon His rock. The second thing we notice here is we praise God when we have made Him the source of our deliverance in our everyday lives. He's the source of our deliverance in our everyday lives. And we see that David describes this in verses 4-19 through 19, and then again in verses 30-45. through 45. So he starts and ends with this praise of God who he's built his life upon, who is a sure foundation, his stability. But then the next two sections that kind of bracket this psalm are sections describing God's deliverance. And the first section here, verses 4 through 19, is describing the greatness of God's deliverance. And in fact, as you read through that, it's just these amazing things. And yet, as far as we know, David never experienced a literal display of God's presence in these exalted 
ways. James Montgomery Boyce writes, but this does not mean that David merely made these things up. A careful comparison of Bible passages will show that these terms were all borrowed from the accounts of God's self-manifestation in Egypt, at Sinai, and during the days of Joshua and the days of the judges. And so as we look through this, we see that God's deliverance of David is likened in David's mind to the great moments of God's deliverance at other times. He wants to declare to us how great and glorious it is that God delivers. And the fact is, you may say, well, God's never parted a sea for me. But what David's trying to tell us here is that every moment that God delivers you is a moment like parting the Red Sea. That if God is at work, God is at work. If God is delivering, it's supernatural deliverance, even if your eyes don't see it that way. God is saying, or David is saying here, God is that great that he would stoop down and deliver a man like me and people like you. Just like he did with the Israelites coming out of Egypt. Just like he did with Joshua with the hailstones raining down on his enemies. Just like he did when he parted the Red Sea. So we see this, verses 7-11. through He describes God's deliverance in similar ways to God's, God's appearance at Mount Sinai where the earth reeled and rocked, where the foundations trembled and quaked, where smoke went up and, and the flaming fire So much so that the Israelites looked at that mountain in fear because God was there. And then they said, Moses, you go talk to him because we're afraid. We're going to stay here. You go talk to him. This is the God who delivered them. In verses 12 through 14, he compares the deliverance that God brought to his life to God's deliverance and conquering of the promised land. We see there the hailstones that rained down like coals of fire broke from the clouds and this is this is similar to when Joshua invades the land and God allows hail to fall on his enemies he thundered in the heavens he uttered his voice and hailstones and coals of fire he sent out his arrows and scattered them flashed forth lightning and routed them in verse 15 we see David describing God's deliverance in similar ways to Uh, The Red Sea, here the channels of the sea were seen. What is he saying? The waters parted so you could see the very ground of it. The foundations of the world were laid bare. This is the power that God has. We see here in verse 16, He sent from on high and took me and drew me out of many waters. Anybody have an idea there? Who was drawn out of the waters? Was it not baby Moses? the deliverer of God's people, as, as the Pharaoh was killing all of the boys, God yet delivers Moses ultimately to be the deliverer out of the waters. David likens it to even Moses' deliverance. He likens it in verse 17 to God's dealing with the Canaanites, and specifically Jericho. Remember as they came to, they came to the border of the promised land, and they sent 12 spies. You guys want to sing it with me? No, they say 12 spies were sent to Canaan, 10 were bad, and 2 were good, right? What did they come back and say? What did the 10 come back and say? They're too powerful. Giants live in the land. He rescued me from my strong enemy, those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. 
He describes it in ways like those ten came back. But what, what did the two... What did the two say? Yeah, they are strong and mighty, but who is stronger? But our God is stronger. Caleb and Joshua come in and say, yeah, it's, it's flowing with milk and honey like He promised. And yes, there are strong armies that await us. Giants, but our God is greater. Our God is stronger. David's with even Joshua and Caleb and saying, they're too mighty for me. But they're not too mighty for God. The God of, you know, why does he do this? He wants to describe to us the greatness of who God is, but he also wants to say this that the God of Moses and Joshua and of the judges, he is also David's God. The God who delivered Israel in the past is the God who had delivered David. And what does that declare to us? That that is our God as well. We don't serve a God who is not powerful and not able. We may not always see the same grandeur. David didn't see the same grandeur. And yet he declares this same God is the God who has delivered me. It's, it's the source of our deliverance in our everyday lives. We don't all have Red Sea experiences. But we all can see the deliverance of God in our everyday life as we look to Him. The same great God can deliver us too. He goes on to describe his own experience of God's deliverance in the second part here, in verses 30 through verse 45. Here the psalm now alternates between what God does and what David does as empowered by the Lord. In other words, he says here that God's deliverance is brought about by God's power and yet often through David's efforts. That is, one commentator writes, in order to enter into the perfection of, God, of the Lord's purposes, it is necessary to live responsively to His work for us. Which we see starts in verse 30. David starts this section by saying this, this God... His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. Like David's hope for deliverance is the fact that he has run to God. He has followed God. And notice how he alternates throughout this entwining God's work and his own efforts in here. For who is the Lord... Who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equips me with strength. God's the one equipping, yet it's David's strength and, and made my way blameless. It is God who enables him to live blamelessly, and yet it is David's way. He made my feet. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms may bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supports me and your gentleness made me great. You have gave a wide place for my steps under me. My feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were unable to rise and they fell under my feet. 
For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. And those who destroyed me, or those who hated me, I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. We see here this this entwining of God's work and David's work. The you and the he and the your of God entwined with the my and the me and the I of David. God's empowerment and David's obedience is what brought about deliverance. Yet David understands that without God's empowerment, though, there would be no deliverance no matter what he did. God was the source of his deliverance. And David was just the instrument of God. That's why David said, you made those who rise against me sink under me, while also saying, I beat them fine as dust. It's God's power at work in in and through David. Yet, I don't think from this passage without saying that this is a picture of someone far greater whose work is entwined and whose motive is entwined with the very thoughts and motives of God. That here is a picture of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ, who is, who, there's no greater one who is entwined with God the Father than God the Son. In fact, we, we see that in the fact that before the very foundations of the world, Jesus is said to be the Lamb slain. And that that Lamb being slain is throughout the Scriptures emphasizing Jesus' obedience to the Father's plan, to the Father's will. That as Paul writes, that we have the mind among ourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count at equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. The instrument of God the Father to do his work. Just like David, David's desire and, and his experience in God's deliverance was God's empowerment and his being that instrument of God to bring it about. Even more so, we see it in Jesus Christ, the unity of God the Father and God the Son and their plan and the willingness of Jesus Christ to be the instrument that brings it about. Jesus himself affirmed that God the Father was the source of his deliverance. Even as he is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, who will deliver him? Oh, that this cup would pass, but not my will, but yours be done. In your will I find my hope. Who is is the one that the Son being tempted in the wilderness by Satan, looks to. 
He looks to the Father. Every answer he gives to the tempter is the words of the Father. I will trust my Father. He will give me what is good. He is my source of deliverance. Sure, I can look at this world and think of all sorts of ways that maybe it would work better. I could deliver myself by doing this, by doing that, by doing this other thing. I'm feeling unhappy now. You know what? I'll just go do something that will make me feel good. There's a lot of deliverers in the world promising deliverance to us. What David says is his deliverance only came from the empowerment of God and him living as God's instrument, which he emphasizes specifically um, in the next point. But before we go there, back to Luke 6 again. I'm going to reference Luke 6 throughout. Again, as Jesus calls on us to hear his words and do them, what does he say about the person? He says that, that they built their house on the rock. And then he goes on to say that when the floods and the stream came, he says this, that house could not be shaken. Why? Because it was built well. It had the right foundation, and the instrument built well upon that foundation. He built a good house. This is what David is saying. I'm seeking to be the instrument so that I might build my life well. Which leads us to point number three. We praise God when we have made His commands the source of our obedience in our everyday life. And this is actually very similar to the first point of Psalm 17. That, that the, the effectiveness of our prayer depends upon us living upright and righteous lives. That that's what, that's what David, the first thing that David um, appeals to before God to hear his prayers is that he has chosen to live in obedience to God. And prayer and praise, therefore, are dependent on our righteous living. Here's an Old Testament example from Jeremiah 6, verses 19 and 20. Jeremiah speaking on behalf of God. God saying, Hear, O earth, behold, I bring disaster upon this people, the fruit of their devices, because they have not paid attention to my words. And as for my law, they have rejected it. What use to me is frankincense that comes from Sheba or sweet cane from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices pleasing to me. He's writing, he's speaking to the people of Israel, God's people, and he's saying, stop worshiping me. If you're going to disregard my commands and my laws, because Your worship means nothing to me. Your words, your songs. Here specifically, their act of worship was a burnt offering, so they're going to the temple and offering sacrifices to God, which God had commanded them to do. But he says, they mean nothing though if the heart is not behind it. If if you're not living in a way that respects me and and is, is gracious towards me and knows my law and does them, then what good is all your worship? Because it means nothing to me, God says. Or we go to the New Testament. Example specifically in Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, as Jesus here is speaking to one of the seven churches. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. 
Would that you were either cold or hot. Now he's not asking him to be cold in the sense of very cold spiritually. But this city that he's speaking to had both uh, clear, cool, cold water that was refreshing and was known for it. And it also had hot springs that were viewed as medicinal. And here, what Jesus is saying, I wish that you were useful, that you were living rightly. I wish that you were water that was useful to me. But what does he say instead? So because you are lukewarm and neither hot, medicinal for help, or cold, refreshing to drink, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I don't want to, I, I'm not accepting the worship of my people just because they sing songs to me and just because they say nice things about me. I mean, if we who are human beings have enough logic to understand that we wouldn't accept people's praise if we knew that about them, how much more is God who says, I will not be mocked? God is disgusted with the prayers and praise of those who are unwilling to live obedient lives. Now, David's not describing here the fact that he has always lived perfectly, and we know that's true, right? Rather, he is describing the tenor of his life. He's describing what, what the, the big view of his life looks like. You know, while David sinned in great ways, sinned with Bathsheba, uh, sinned in numbering the people, Yet, why do we still say he is a man after God's own heart? Because of the wholeness of his life. His desire was to bring glory to God. And even in those instances, his response was one of repentance, was one of of great humility, humbling himself before the Lord, placing the sin on himself alone, casting no blame on anyone else. So that he might write at the end of his life, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness and according to the cleanness of my hands he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. Not perfect, but yet that was his aim and his goal and he continued to pursue it. That's why I say God is disgusted with the prayers and praise of those who are unwilling to live righteously. Unwilling to live obedient who know God's rules and yet flaunt the fact that they will not obey them. Maybe it's just in their own heads. I'm not going to do what God wants me to do. Whereas obedience yields good fruit, God responds to our obedience just as much as He does our disobedience. It is good to stand before God in righteousness and cleanness. Only Christians can. And therefore, I would say, because only we can, we should. Like, that should be a motive. Like, the only reason we can stand before... I'm getting excited. I'm starting to not finish my sentences. Uh, The only reason we can stand before God righteous and clean at all is because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We know this. The Gospel declares for us that we are sinners, but that when Jesus died on the cross, He took our sins. All of us who would put our trust in Him, He paid for those sins, and He gave us His righteousness so that now we might live righteously. 
That's what's happened to us. And so we understand, based on Scripture, only Christians can do this, live rightly and cleanly before God. And therefore, I would appeal to you that as a Christian, you should do this. This is what you should do. This is what your life should be pursuing. It is true that all have sinned. No one will be perfect this side of eternity. Nevertheless, we are new creations in Jesus Christ, brought forth, born of His power, to do good works. Therefore, obedience and righteousness should be the marks of our life. It's not that we can't fail. We will, just like David. But the mark of his life is a man after God's own heart, and that should be the mark of all of our lives as well. And therefore, our praise then, our praise then, because we're pursuing, we're pursuing obedience, we're pursuing righteousness, our praise is acceptable before God. The songs that we sing, He delights in, He rejoices in, He loves to hear our praises. But it is God who defines this obedience. Notice here in verses 20 through 24, specifically let's Verse 21, for I have kept the ways of the Lord. It's His ways. Verse 22, for all His rules were before me, and His statutes I did not put away from me. It is His rules, His statutes, not mine. In fact, the Scripture is very clear, specifically in Proverbs, wisdom passages, that to go my way, to go my way is to depart from His. Notice how he describes it. I have not wickedly departed from my God. Or, in verse 22, in his statutes, I did not put away from me. I did not set them aside and say, I'm going to do my own thing. No, David says, that would not be right. He goes on to say, I was blameless before him, verse 23, and I kept myself from my guilt. He puts away... Um, he does not put away the ways of God. He does not depart from the ways of God. He does not fall into guilt because he has chosen to go his own way. Christians, therefore, live obedience as God defined it. We are to choose to be blameless before him. We are to choose to keep ourselves from guilt by obeying him. We simply just cannot praise God in a way that he will accept without obedience. Building on the rock is a metaphor for living obediently. As Jesus says in Luke 6, he says, everyone who comes to me, who hears my word and does them, is like the man who builds his house on the rock. Does them. Obedience is necessary. An obedient life built on the rock leads to a life of praise to God. But number four, We praise God when we have made Him the source of our judgment in our everyday life. This is the center of the psalm. And often at the center, there is some truth that the psalmist really wants to highlight. John Calvin writes this. The scope of the discourse, the psalm, is that the people of God should entertain good hope and encourage themselves to practice uprightness and integrity, since every man shall reap the fruit of his own righteousness. 
And that's really this general principle that David gets to right here at the center of the psalm. This general principle that God deals with people the way they deal with Him. And yet He does so without sin. Notice what He says here in verse 25-29. through 29, With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. And for by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. Here, David affirms a principle that we see affirmed in other parts in Scripture. James 4, 8, he describes it, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. For God oppresses the proud. Which what are the proud often? They are often oppressors. Yet, gives grace to the humble. Or Galatians 6, 7, 8, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And often we focus on the negative one, but Paul is meaning to emphasize the positive. And, and in fact, David is emphasizing the positive here. He lists the positives three times. And he only lists the negative once. But he wants us to understand that if we respond positively to God with mercy and blamelessness and pureness, God will show His mercy and blamelessness and purity to us. But on the other hand, if we are crooked before God, if we seek to be witty and cunning with God, He will be tortuous. Now that's not a word I normally use, so I had to look it up. Tortuous means full of twists and turns. And here's what I think David is intending for us to understand. God will outwit the cunning. I think it's what Paul is saying when he says God will not be mocked. He will not be tricked. You may trick everyone else, but you cannot trick God. You may think you're cunning in how you're making deals and bargains with God, and saying, I'll be good in this area, but not in this area, but that's okay, God. I used to do that when I was a teenager. I thought I could make a deal with God. Bargain with God. God, if I don't do this, then, then you'll be happy with me. But it didn't matter whether I loved Him or not. It didn't matter where I cared about Him or wanted to glorify Him with my life. I just thought I could be cunning and witty and make deals with God. But God is not that way. And in fact, if you deal with Him in that way, He will outwit you. And there are many, many examples in Scripture of people who tried to outwit God, outwit God and failed. One that comes to mind is in the book of Acts. A man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira who sold land and thought they could trick God. And they ended up dead. God will not be mocked. He will not. And so David's encouragement and warning here is that what you build on in this life will make a difference. It will make a difference. And God is ultimately the judge of it. God is ultimately the one who we're seeking to please and glorify with our lives. Not anyone else. It is Him that we come to. And Him that we praise. Him that we want our lives to glorify. 
And you may not see it right now, how God is bringing about His mercy and blamelessness and purity because God does not always work in our time frame. Job is a good example of this. In his living mercifully, blamelessly, and pure, yet we see God say to Satan, have you, have you noticed my servant Job? And the great sufferings that Job faced. But in the end, God blesses Job. Nor does God work the ways we think he should. David is not here teaching a prosperity gospel. It's God who determines how he shows his mercy, his blamelessness, and his purity to us as we live for him, not us. Rather, David is reminding every Christian that a life of praise is a life built on God's judgments alone. Only he can be the judge. Which leads us to our application here. No, our everyday lives should give us grounds to praise. That's what we should know from this. Our everyday lives should give us grounds to praise God. But it depends on how we build them. Our lives can bring God glory if we choose to live them for God's glory. Where you find your stability matters, where you find your deliverance matters, where you, where you, uh, who and what you obey matters, <coughs> whose judgment you crave matters. These things matter to bringing glory to God. And we should know that. So how should we walk? It's all centered really around knowing God and following God. David spent his life getting to know God. He knew who his stability was. He knew where his deliverance would come from. He knew the commands to obey. He knew God's ways and how he judges. And therefore, building on the rock takes time in God's word to know. The one who hears my word. Let's start there. Are you hearing God's word? Are you daily in the word of God to hear what Jesus has to say, what God has to tell you about who he is and what he is like? And then in turn, Jesus says, not only hear my words, but do them. So are you actually taking time outside of God's word to live out what you learn, what you hear? So are you learning God? Do you hear His voice through His Word? Are you spending time with Him? Are you coming to Jesus daily to hear them? And then do you do what He says? Are you looking for His commands as you go to the Scriptures? And are you following them? Are you looking for ways to trust Him and then trusting Him in your everyday choices in life? The fact is, I think it boils down to we cannot praise the one we do not know nor can we praise the one whom we do not follow. So let us know and follow our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We pray as we close and praise that it would be our commitment to know and follow you, that we would make you the source of our stability and deliverance, the source of our obedience through your commands, the source of our judgment, our let us not be deceived into thinking words are enough. Let us both speak words of praise and live lives of praise. And may you receive all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.